It's not cricket to pick it, not cricket. Oh no, it's just not come in for to pick it. You haven't any right to know you're acting in great haste. Just think of the predicament in which your boss is placed. And entre nous, I think it's in exceedingly bad taste. Not cricket to pick it, not cricket. This intelligent satire might not have succeeded if Pins and Needles had failed it's to give American workers a familiar cricket, musical idiom. Not, not mass songs and propagandistic sketches or workers' chants, but timpanelli tunes. 85 years ago today, the pro-labor musical review Pins and Needles opened on Broadway with a cast of members of the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union. Pins and Needles became a big hit with over a thousand performances. It was performed at the White House for President Franklin D. Roosevelt and his wife Eleanor and was revived on Broadway in 1978 as Barbara Streisand singing Not Cricket to Picket and again in London in 2010. On today's show, Michigan State University College of Music professor Maria Cristina Fava explains the relationship of the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union and the Theater Guild in the production of Pins and Needles. Fava describes how the production evolved from a variety show with a cast of unionized garment workers in their off time to the cast giving up their jobs to become full-time actors with the success of the show. She provides reviews by theater critics and describes how the cast navigated the politics of the day. Baba's talk, originally given in October 2012, was part of the Our Daily Work, Our Daily Lives brown bag series sponsored by the Michigan State University School of Human Resources and Labor Relations and the MSU and the MSU Museum. The series is organized by MSU professor John Beck. And on Labor History in Two... The year was 1910. That was the day when thousands of people came to see the location where a fire had ravaged a sweatshop in Newark, New Jersey. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. Here's Michigan State University College of Music professor... Maria Cristina Fava. Pins and Needles uh, was produced by an amateur cast and addressed an audience of workers and combined political satire, vaudeville, skit, and timpan alley songs. Its production history really reads uh, to some extent like a fairy tale. In 1935, the American Federation of Labor voted at its annual convention to sponsor labor drama as an educational tool for the cultural enhancement of workers. In response to this resolution, the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union, from now on ILGWU, otherwise we are here until tomorrow, acquired the Princess uh, Theatre on 39th Street, renamed it Labor Stage, and organized classes in the performing arts for its workers. Louise Schaeffer, who was the director, formed the amateur company ILGWU Players, and then he arranged for instructions from Victor Wolfson of the Theatre Union and other prominent professionals. Harold Rome wrote the bulk of the review's lyrics and music, but other writers and composers prominent in the workers' movement, for instance Arthur Arendt, Charles Friedman, 
and again Mark Blitzstein, contributed to the show as well. At first, a semi-professional company, the Contemporary Players, presented pins and needles for an invited audience and members of the union on June 23, 1936. The performance took place in a small studio above the main auditorium of the labor stage. Rome and composer Earl Robinson accompanied at the piano. Ben Irwin, who was the critic of a daily worker, and he was present at this performance, he praised the production for its revolutionary approach to the genre. He said, Pins and Needles is certainly a heroic and ambitious enterprise, heroic in a definite sense, because with terrifically limited facilities, a small stage and two pianos, its producers have attempted a form of entertainment that is usually accompanied by a full-fledged orchestra, revolving stage, enormous cast, and a full staff of high-paid technicians. Thus, to some extent, Pins and Needles follows closely Morrow's prescription for successful workers' theatre and demonstrated that elaborate costumes and choreography, so central to Broadway produ productions, were unnecessary in a review with something to say. The success of the showcase convinced Schaeffer and the ILGWU to move ahead with performances by the union's amateur forces. Rome and his collaborators spent a year revising the show and planning for studio tryouts during the summer of 1937. Eventually, Pins and Needles moved to the main auditorium on November 27 for a regular run in front of a paying audience. The 55 original cast members, male and female, represented 10 of the 38 metropolitan branches of uh, the ILGW, from the cors corset and brassiere workers local to the dressmakers local and the bonnets embroiderers local, just to name a few. At first, they performed only on weekends, but after a month, box office receipt encouraged Schaeffer to commenced nightly, nightly performances too, and he obtained leaves of absence for the actors from their uh, regular factory jobs and enrolled them uh, in chorus equity and as junior members of actors equity. Still though, these workers gained no economic advantage over other members of the ILGWU. They, were, they received exactly the same pay as their co-workers. Because of the show's popularity, a second company, directed by Robert Gordon, performed five o'clock matinee. In the spring of 1937, Pins and Needles played as many as 15 performances a week with a full, a full capacity theater. Eventually, the ILGWU players left the 299-seat auditorium of the labor stage and in June 1939 moved to the Windsor Theater, which was a slightly, a slightly bigger house, about 400 seats. The company also presented on February 3, 1938, a comment performance at the White House for President Franklin D. Roosevelt and his wife Eleanor. And when garment workers and general audience alike clamored for a nationwide road tour, ILGWU officials created a third company and the original cast went on the road. So at a time when most hit plays lasted an average of six months on Broadway, Pins and Needles ran for 1,108 performances, nearly three full years before closing on June 22, 1940. So, Pins and Needles then received 
incredibly positive reviews. The correspondent for the New York Times, the ILGWU players, a new addition to the growing list of imaginative and youthful theatrical groups which are making monkeys of the folks who think it is fashionable to say the theater is dead. And uh, Richard Lockridge uh, of the New York Sun commented that for the first time uh, in the labor stage history, they can laugh at themselves as well as their antagonists. The topicality of pins and needles partly uh, accounts for this incredible success. Let's look at the program of the first production, the one, the premiere, when it opened on November 27th in, in 1937. It was directed by Charles Friedman, Friedman and produced by Louis Schaeffer, and it included these 19 numbers. We see sketches that told popular front lines regarding racial equality, uh, justice and commitment to freedom, rejection of fascism and oppression, and concerns, of course, for the war. Yet, they also skewered broader issues ranging from world politics and anti-war sentiment to high taxes and then the growing labor movements both in the USA and also abroad. For instance, anti-fascist satire becomes the focus of the numbers, numbers such as Mussolini handicap, public enemy number one, and especially for little angels of peace, in which the leaders of the Axis powers in Europe and Asia, like uh, Hitler, Mussolini, the Emperor Hirohito, and, and Eden, the British foreign ministers uh, at the time, they promote themselves as the four little angel of peace. Of course, I only gave you the words of the opening of the first uh, strophe and then the reprise at the end, but I will play the song in a moment. I want to point out that the music is also filled with very subtle and intelligent humor, not just the words of a song. For instance, catchy barbershop harmonies on the word harmony, or use of the typical Italian, well, Neapolitan mandolin when Mussolini speaks, or of a German folk song, Ach du lieber Augustin, when Hitler uh, takes uh, the stage. So the, there are a lot of, of jokes, uh, musical jokes too, that the audience would certainly uh, appreciate. And this is an image of the original production, as you can see that on, the, on your left is Mussolini, and the, this is Hitler, and they have wings, so they are on stage uh, dressed like angel with, with wings. And the, the show that they, that they put on, in, in this show, they, they sing and they fight in slapstick fashion, almost like a minstrel show, and then in the end they are all beaten. So, here, let me play the music. <laughs> Four little angels of peace are we, loving our neighbors so peacefully. There's really no harm if we do not disarm, for we're always in close harmony. Four little angels of peace are we, there is one thing on which we agree. With foe or with friend we will fight to the end just for peace. Peace. Though we butchered the Boers on their own native shores and slaughtered the Irish no end, though on Inja we poured, slaying horde upon horde, we were playing the part of a friend. Yes, our arms we increased, but we really for peace, except in the case of a crook. We conquered both spheres, now we're up to our ears, just trying to keep what we took. 
Three little angels of peace are we, living together so blissfully. Oh, we never fight unless we're in the right, but we're always in the right. Three little angels of peace are we, there is one thing on which we agree. Until we are wrecks, we'll break each other's necks just for peace, peace, peace. of peace are we living together in amity we'll sign any pact saying we won't attack but that's just a mere formality two little angels of peace are we there is one thing on which we agree we try to keep calm when we gas and we bomb just for peace peace Now I know that a war is a thing to abhor And that a peace will fill our cornucopia With a love from the start I adjusted did my part to civilopia Though you call me sadistic, imperialistic My armies require a quarry And though we may slay hordes of Spaniards each day After all, don't we say that we're sorry I fall for the urge of a nice bloody perch And leave in my wake piles of carrion Though I clean up my schmutz with a real Nazi putsch It is all for the sake of the Aryan My ambitions are small, I want nothing at all My plans couldn't be any littler Now that Austria's Nazi, it would be hotsy-totsy To put the whole world under Hitler Four little angels of peace are we, reeking with odor of sanctity. Though we slaughter the meek, we confer every week, and we talk it over peacefully. Four little angels of peace are we, there is one thing on which we agree. With shot and with shell we give each other hell just for peace. So that was one of the most successful numbers of, of the show. But, the, but there were pins and needles not only offered satire of current political and economic events, entertainment values and intelligent humor also spiced up songs about uh, working class romance. For instance, the second number that they presented on opening night, which is called Why Sing of Skies? above, it's the light-hearted humor forthcoming in the show as the girls, they demand that the boys sing songs that have social significance. Sing as a song with social significance, or you can sing till you are blue, let me in shine from every line, or we won't love you. So 
with this song, the workers parodied themselves and the very idea of left-wing musicals by mocking the requirements that songs must have social significance. Uh, this is shorter, and I really want to play because it, the words will scroll down. I'm tired of moon songs, of star and of June songs. They simply make me nap. And ditties romantic drive me nearly frantic. I think they're all full of pap. History's making, nations are quaking. Why sing of stars above? For while we are waiting, Father Time's creating new things to be singing of. Sing me a song with social significance All other tunes are taboo I want a ditty with heat in it Appealing with feeling and meat in it Sing me a song with social significance Or you can sing till you're blue Let meaning shine from every line Or I won't love you Sing me of wars and sing me of breadlines. Tell me of front page news. Sing me of strikes and last minute headlines. Dress your observation in syncopation. Sing me a song with social significance. There's nothing else that will do. It must get hot with what is what or I won't love you. song that's satirical putting the mirror into miracle it must be packed with social fact or I won't love you sing me of kings and conferences marshal tell me of mills and mines sing me of courts that aren't impartial what's to be done with them tell me in rhythm sing me a song with social significance there's nothing else that will do it must be tense with common sense or i won't love you So the sensational run of pins and needles took everyone by surprise, and as noted by many, it signaled the entrance of the left-wing theater into the field of a Broadway musical review. The gaiety and freshness of a show can account for its success, especially if compared with the earlier production of a WTM. As a New York Times correspondent remarked, in New York, the drama study groups of the various locals had for a long time been staging the usual sort of agit prop sketches, grim little items which for the most part were soliloquies on to strike or not to strike, or depicted the drab and colorless lives of the workers until they joined the union after which everybody lived happily ever after. Many of them ended with the feast and strident rendition of solidarity forever. Even the workers were bored. 
In short, critics emphasized that a combination of social meaning and musical review defined the essence of a pins and needle. But I would argue also an idiosyncratically American quality reminiscent of the wobbly, irreverent, irreverent songs and skits from two decades earlier also permeate uh, this uh, satire and comedy of pins and needles. These genuine and somewhat naive attributes appealed to the audience more than the dark and angry features of the agit prop street dramas of the worker theater movement or even of the bitter propagandistic sketches of parade. American audiences found it difficult to, to accept the rigid stereotypical images used in agit prop plays because they portrayed a world they did not belong to. Rome's competent and the lighter yet still prickly sketches depicted real people and situations to which the audience could easily relate. For instance, the New York family planning a Sunday in the park as the only affordable form of entertainment, or the Vassar girl who is unable to find a job anywhere but behind the counter at Macy's, or uh, a consumption-oriented woman who evidently follows advertisement suggestions in the hope of finding a man, but nobody makes a pass at her. So the lyrics with which workers make fun at themselves in pins and needles are funny, witty, and very subtle. On the other hand, writers Peter and Sklar's gruesome attempts in parade to ridicule the Red Scare and stereotypical conservative views came off as a dull form of theatrical suicide, with anonymous actors chanting this text from a darkened stage. How could any production expect to succeed? Destruction is our chief delight. We plot in cellars in the dead of night. Our diet is buckshot and dynamite. We are the tabloid rats. We eat little children with gunpowder sauce. We make little bombs which we love to toss. And if we miss, we are very cross. We are the tabloid rats, and so on. So they were trying to be funny and to bring satire and parody, but it was very gruesome and it didn't certainly, it didn't certainly, it wasn't greeted with success by, by the audience. But on the others, on the contrary, by in contrast, Rome's witty and biting lyrics in another song, like doing the reactionary, for instance, made the audience laugh while satirizing the same conservative behaviors. Song here turns right-wing stance into a fashionable dance, equivalent to doing foxtrot. Um, it also makes fun of a series of songs that were very popular in the 20s and 30s, doing the Apache, doing the Walls, doing the Fox. So it makes fun uh, at also Timpan Alley's uh, production in, in, in this sense. But if you look at the chorus, the, the words, don't, don't go left, but be polite, move to the right, doing the reactionary. So it's being a reactionary. It's very easy. Everyone can do it. It's like doing the Foxtrot. It's like dancing. You can do it. Just move on. Don't look back go in your direction and don't look at what's going on behind, uh, behind you. But this very, this satire, this intelligent satire might not have succeeded if pins and needles had failed to give American workers a familiar musical idiom. Not mass songs and propagandistic sketches or workers' chants, but timpanelli tunes. And let's keep doing the reactionary and as an example, and you'll see it perfectly fits into the standardized, standardized form. We have a four-major introduction which establishes the, the tonic, which in this case is C minor, and then uh, 
conclusion, I have cadence. Then we have our verse, which is 12, uh, very, very balanced, 12 measures, three phrases each for measures. And the verse sets the joke, it says being a reactionary is but a dance. And then we have our chorus, perfect lyri uh, ly um, lyric binary, A, A, B, A. It has a refrain, it is repeated, and then uh, the ending of the repetition is that little coda, nine measures of coda. So it's really the perfect standardized form. And then in the chorus, of course, the words lampoons, the ease with which these politicians and tycoons, they move from left to right with, this with their eyes closed, and they uh, seem not to acknowledge what they leave behind. And I will play eventually the song, but I want before that to point out an interesting, an interesting unconventional moment in this conventional form. So, it is almost as though the conventionality of a musical structure helps Rome stress the social meaning of the lyrics because he subtly undermines the norm to bring out the political satire in various examples and the, the most evident is the one that occurs uh, at the end uh, of a second phrase of uh, a section uh, it's uh, if you look at the second staff it's just the beginning on the words doing the reactionary so at, at that point um, we, we the, the words are sang on a bluesy a flat major with flattened seven but the most interesting aspect is that the subdivision of the word reactionary, uh, which is quite inelegant, and, uh, it seemed, uh, and the melodic line seems to stumble on that, on that uh, division. Also, if you, not, uh, if you notice, it ends exactly on the fourth beat of a measure, which is a weak beat, and generally that doesn't happen at the end of a phrase in a, book, uh, in, in a song. At the end of a phrase, it ends on the third or on the second, not on the fourth. It, really gives you that impression that there is a stump, that the melodic line is uh, stumbling. And what happens here, it is that Rome might have used that blue note and this unusual phrase ending and subdivision of a word to emphasize the irregularity of being a reactionary. So on that word reactionary, he makes a joke with the music to show the irregularity of being a reactionary. And in the only available recording of um, uh, uh, commercial recording of this song, a very young Barbara Streisand, when she performs these lines, she seems to emphasize even more that irregularity by, especially in the repetition of the chorus, by singing with a very prominent nasal voice. There is an, a nasal inf inflection, and she seems to emphasize even more that, that ending of, of a phrase. So let me go back so that you can follow the song. And it happens every time she says reactionary, but especially in the second it's darker than the dark bottom It rumbles more than the rumble If you think that the two-step got em, Just take a look at this number It's got that certain swing That makes you want to sing Don't go left, but be polite Move to the right, doing the reactionary Close your eyes to where you're bound Reactionary. All the best dictators do it. Millionaires keep stepping to it. The 400 love to sing it. Ford and Morgan swing it. Hand a pie and shake your head. You'll soon see red doing the reactionary. Reactionary. 
Move to the right. Doing the reactionary. Close your eyes to where you're bound. And you'll be found. Doing the reactionary. All the best dictators do. Millionaires keep stepping to the 400 love to sing it for. It may be that Barbara Streisand responds so well to the tension in the vocal line because she learned, maybe she preserved a performance tradition that she learned from Harold Rom, who was the pianist. He was performing at the piano in this song. So maybe he taught her uh, how to emphasize even more that uh, unconventional moment in an, in an otherwise very uh, conventional structure. We don't know, but it evidently points it out. And uh, the political and social impact of the sketches included in Pins and Needles did not go unnoticed. Even though Schaeffer wanted to avoid communist allusions in the show, many of the ILGWU men and women, as well as the professionals who joined the second and third casts, were left-leaning or directly involved with the Communist Party. They knew exactly which jokes Rome and his collaborators intended to make and what the lyrics implied. The review, in reality, became a powerful aim, image of um, an emerging American working uh, class, to the point that, as, a ring, as Ringer are the professionals who were hired for the second and third, uh, because they, they couldn't use all uh, workers of the union, otherwise no one would make under. <laughs> undergarments. <laughs> so to the point that, as Lee Morrison recalled, it turned into a catalyst for politicians in search of public ex exposure. She also emphasized that, degree of that the degree of political involvement of cast members, she said, the actors were very socialistically minded. They knew what it was like to be a worker. They weren't like the intellectual communist sympathizers who had no idea what it was like to be a worker. And in conclusion, political implications aside, many of the review's songs became entrenched in national musical consciousness, hummed by the average Joe in public and danced to in private. They became the soundtrack to workers' everyday life, uh, as Michael Denning argues, though their forms were taken from Tin Pan Alley songs. They became as much the folk songs of New York's garment workers as were the Southern Mill songs of Gastonia's Ella Mae Wiggins or the mining ballads of Harlan County's Aunt Molly Jackson's and Sarah Ogan Gunning. In this way, Pins and Needles succeeded. It filled the workers' need for socially meaningful and at the same time enjoyable entertainment. Thank you. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1910. That was the day when thousands of people came to see the location where a fire had ravaged a sweatshop in Newark, New Jersey. The day before, at least 26 women perished in the inferno. The workers of the Alfred and Irving Wolf Muslin Undergarment Company made nightgowns. On the morning of the fire, 
there were more than 100 women crowded into the fourth floor workspace. The fire broke out when a can of gasoline was knocked over in the lamp company located below the sweatshop. The floors of the garment shop were wooden and strewn with fabric. The fire spread quickly. It roared up so fast. Even though there was a fire station across the street, the fire crew could not get there in time. It would become the worst fire in Newark's history. Desperate women tried to escape, but the fire safety exits were not adequate. Some of the women leapt to their deaths from the fourth story windows. The fire became national news. No one was ever held legally accountable for the conditions that led to the fire. Less than a year and a half later, tragedy would again strike the garment industry when the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire would claim the lives of 146 workers. The events of the Newark fire faded into the annals of history. For years, no memorial marked the location. Richard Greenwald, a dean at a nearby university, thought that the women who died deserved to be remembered. As the 100th anniversary approached, he found the graves of 25 of the women and organized a memorial ceremony. He also helped to create a bronze plaque to remember the site. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. Sing me a song with social significance. All other tunes are taboo. I want a ditty with heat in it, appealing with feeling and meat in it. That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, and we hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Very special thanks this week to the Our Daily Work, Our Daily Lives Brown Bag series for today's talk by Michigan State University College of Music professor Maria Cristina Fava, originally given back in October 2012. Our Daily Work, Our Daily Lives is sponsored by the Michigan State University School of Human Resources and Labor Relations and the MSU Museum. The series is organized by MSU professor John Beck. Labor History Today is produced with the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history. And see you next time. With social significance, there's nothing else that will do. It must be tense.